Good morning. How are you this morning? Good, 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 good. I like things to be logical and I like things to be fair. How many of you agree? Logical and fair. Audience participation time. Here we go. If, I, I know I keep trying this. What's a new year though? I've tried it in old years and it didn't go, but this is a new year and this is a new attempt. So here we go. Audience participation time. For those who like things to be logical and like things to be fair, let me ask you this question. If I do the right thing, and if you do the right thing, what should you expect as a result? I knew this was going to work. That's exactly right. That was excellent. That was excellent. One at a time. What should you expect? What? Thank you. No. If you do the right thing, what should you expect the results to be? Right. Right? All right, I'm in agreement. If you do what's right, you expect things to be done right, or, 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 if you do the right thing, you expect good things as a result. All right, the other side of the coin. If you do the wrong thing, or I do the wrong thing, I should expect what? You can't go wrong if you do that, right? What? You, yeah. you expect to be elected to office. Very good. No, that's not correct. Why? Because most people can relate to that kind of a person, can't they? Hey, I do wrong. He does wrong. Let's vote him in. Because he certainly will represent me well. No. Um, you should expect, I would think, if you do wrong, you expect consequences, right? Okay, now let me ask you a question. What's wrong with this formula? It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't, right? It just does not work. It's a formula that I, I, you know, I like things to be logical. I expect things to be fair. And if I do good, I expect good things as a result. If I do bad, I expect to be punished or consequences for wrong action. That's the way it's supposed to work. But it doesn't always work that way. Things aren't always logical. It's like the preacher who was going around. He's saying, you know, you know, praise God for everything that he's given us. Praise God for his blessings. I think that we should respond to the blessings of God by giving him at least one-tenth of everything that we have. And a, and a very fervent person in the congregation stood, stood up and said, praise God, I, I'm with you, brother. Let's raise it to one-twentieth. <laughs> see, see, this is the problem with this whole thing, isn't it? That you think, well, that's that's that's. Well, yeah, see, the people get math, they kind of laughed. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Bill's going, I, I don't understand. Why would he want to give away that much more? <laughs> That's the way this, this is the way this thing works, right? I mean, you expect things to be But it isn't always that way. Things aren't always logical. Because there's a, now he's going, oh, that was good. He's going, oh, yeah, that was good. That was funny. It, it's that little, it's that radio delay. We've got that five-second thing working for us there. I know that. And I, I kinda, I've been living with it, and I'm starting to get used to it. Um, because most of you admit, when you don't laugh here, you laugh in the car on your way home. <laughs> Isn't that true? Because some of you are from that background where you're not, you can't laugh. This is church now. You can't laugh now. You, know, you went through that baptism of vinegar thing that you went through, right? Anyway, but that's okay. You can relax a little bit. Here's the deal. There isn't one of us who can't relate to the fact that the tables sometimes turn. If they haven't in your life yet, they are going to. I'll guarantee you this. There will be times when you do the right thing and wrong things will happen. 
There are times it's going to happen. There are times when you do the right thing that you will experience consequences for, for one reason or the other. Now, the problem with that is, if I do what's right and right things happen, okay, I can live with that. If I do what's wrong and wrong things happen, I can live with that. But I, if I do what's right and wrong things happen, that really bugs me. I don't, this, it bothers me. I don't know if it bothers you. But let, let me give you an illustration of it. How many of you, maybe we'll go through this. How many of you, now don't put yourself on the spot, but you know, just try to relate this a little bit. How many of you have ever violated the speed limit? <laughs> and maybe on your way here this morning, right? How many of you ever violated speed limit? And, no, no, okay. Well, everyone's like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, jump on this one because it may get a little more personal. So, so this is kind of like a group thing here. We can all go, well, sure, I can raise my hand here. How many have ever violated the speed limit? Raise your hand. There we go. Oh, ho, ho, ho. No wonder I'm not getting through to any of you. Um, but, and, and, let me finish the question. How many of you ever violated the speed limit and didn't get a ticket for it? Now, let me ask you something. In all fairness, and logically speaking, shouldn't you have gotten a ticket? Yes, you should have got a ticket. How many agreement with that? If you do what's wrong, wrong things happen, right? So you did what was wrong, you expect consequences. If you violate the speed limit, you should get a ticket. Now, let me ask you a question. All you people, raise your hand. How many of you have laid in bed at night saying, I really feel bad about this. I haven't got a ticket. I think I'm going to turn myself in. Now, how many of you said that? Now, okay. Well, have you done it, though? No. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about it. Well, see, see. Or how many of you just, right now, you're going to send in a check? Just, you know, we'll write one out when you get home. We'll send it in. I, I violated the speed limit. I did not get caught. I should have got caught. I feel bad. I think I'll just turn myself in. All right, now let me ask you a question. How many of you, during the course of a normal work week, sometimes, just sometimes, don't put in 100% effort and maybe you still get paid anyway? <laughs> All three of you now, <laughs> I'm a hard worker and I can't raise my hand, my boss is in the room. But just assuming, maybe you have a down week, you know what I'm saying? You're just like, you're just a little sluggish, you haven't worked the full 40 hours or whatever, you get paid to work, and at the end of the week, when they pay, hand you your paycheck, you said, I can't take all this. <laughs> no, I can't, I can't take all of this. I mean, I, I to just deduct something. There was four, six, 10 hours, 40 hours this week that, you know, I just haven't been really into it. Now, no one does it, right? I, you know, being around sports, here's an interesting thing. Guy's not on the field. He holds a guy. No one sees it. He's feeling bad. He walks back to the huddle. Man, I just held that guy. No one saw it. We just scored a touchdown. I can't live with myself anymore. He goes over to the ref. He asks to borrow his little thing, turn it on. Excuse me, I'd like to apologize to everybody in the stadium. I held that man. Some of you see it. Some of you didn't. I didn't get caught. I think I should turn myself in. No one does that kind of stuff, right? Now, let me ask you a question. You get pulled over. You haven't done anything. You get a ticket. How do you like that? Huh? You go pick up your paycheck. 
you're short paid. How do you like that? You didn't hold anybody. They throw a flag on you. They announce your name to everybody in the country, including your mother and all your friends. It's the only time anybody knows an offensive lineman is, and it's offensive because they've done something wrong. That was number 77, he was holding. That's it right there, the guy right there, number 77 on his back, he was holding. And everybody goes, oh, him again. See, but he wasn't holding. This just isn't right. This isn't fair. See, because this messes our whole concept of logic up. Logic and fairness go out the window. I didn't do anything wrong, and now I'm, I'm suffering some type of consequence here. You say, well, what's this have to do with what we've been discussing? It has a lot to do with the consequences of serving other people. And because in reality land that we all live in, the problem that we have is that there are times when we serve others, there are times if you serve others long enough, there will be times when you go to wash the feet of another person that you will be kicked in the teeth. That's the way it is. That's the real world that we live in. Things aren't always logical and they are not fair. But the funny thing is, when an error is to our advantage, we don't seem to have a problem embracing that. But when the error is not in our favor, we get a little bit upset about it because it's not logical, it's not fair. And in fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and we'll take a look at something as we kind of out outline this whole problem. It never ceases to amaze me because I even have this problem and I deal with it on a regular basis. If I do right, good things should happen. And if I don't do right, bad things should happen. And if I get away with not doing right, then I don't have a problem accepting that. But when I am punished in some sort of way, at least my perception of it, when things don't go the way I think they should for what I just did, man, it really bugs me. And it never ceases to amaze me how many of us as Christians haven't really got this down yet, that maybe this is the way it's supposed to be. Maybe it's not the exception. Maybe it's really the rule for God's people. Maybe we should take a closer look at what the Bible teaches about things not going our way. And 1 Peter chapter 2 is an interesting passage, but it says in verses 20 through 24, and we can identify with this and relate to it. It says, For what credit is there if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. There's an interesting question here about this whole paradox of logic and fairness as we perceive it in the world that we live in. But God says in verse 20, you know what, what credit is there if when you sin you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? This makes sense. Part of the equation makes sense. And that is very simple. If I do the wrong thing and I'm punished for it and I patiently endure the consequences of what I've done, God says, what credit is that to you? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. 
There's none of us who sit around and say, gee, you know what, isn't this person a wonderful or model prisoner and that he sits in prison and doesn't complain about the fact that he's been sentenced for the crime he's admitted to, to commit? That's just life. That's the way it is. Nobody thinks that the person's special in any sort of way because he did something wrong, she did something wrong, they were punished for it, and now they endure the punishment. That's the consequences. That's the price that you pay. That's the way it is. What credit is there of anybody if we endure for what we have done? We've brought it upon ourselves. God said there isn't any. He says as he goes through it, he says, but you know what? But, and here's the contrast, if when you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it, look at this. God applauds. This finds favor with God. That's interesting. That is really interesting because when you look at this, you go, man, you know what? If I do what's right and am mistreated because of it, misunderstood because of it, talked about in a negative way because of it, and I endure that patiently, God says, Chuck, well done. That's how you're supposed to respond. That's good. But that's not how most of us respond. That's not how most of us think it should be. We think there's something wrong if we're mistreated for doing what's right. But then here this example that we have is in, the, in what Jesus lays out as an example. And in 1 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18, we see the same thing. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It may be, listen to this, it may be God's will for his people to suffer unjustly for doing what is right. It may be God's will for you to suffer for doing the right thing. Now, I know there are many people who are teaching today that if you suffer in this world, then you are living in sin or you haven't enough faith to overcome it. And all I got to say to you is, that's a bunch of baloney. Because all you got to do is pick up your Bible and read it and study it, and we're going to get into details today. And I'll tell you, by the time you're done with all of it, you're going to start changing your expectations of what you should expect by doing the right thing. Because when you stop expecting everything to be great if you do the right thing, then you will not be disillusioned as to the outcome when things don't always go the way you expect. Because God says, for it is, should it be, and many times it is, the will of God that you suffer for doing what is right. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the unjust for the just, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let me, and let me ask you this question. If people mistreated Jesus, and they did, and he was perfect, and he was, and he endured unjust criticism, condemnation, persecution, and ridicule for what he did. He did the right thing, but was mistreated for doing it, and he was perfect. How much more should us, as imperfect people, expect anything less than that type of treatment? Think about it. In Hebrews chapter 11, Flip back to that. Ask you this question. Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 39. 
It says women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised to them, because God had something and provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Men and women who love God. Men and women who were called by God to do a certain work, and in obedience they stepped forth and they did what God asked them to do. Men and women who suffered scourgings and persecution, afflictions, they were imprisoned, they were tortured, they were beaten, they were executed, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, and, and, and foolish and ignorant people today who want to manipulate the masses of people who want to hear good things will tell people that they have not enough faith and that's why they're going through what they're going through. When this, clearly, this passage in Scripture is called the Hall of Faith, Men and women who did what they did and endured what they did because regardless of whatever they experienced in life, they knew that they could trust God and they longed for and looked for and anticipated what God was going to do in the midst of unpleasant circumstances. People today would have us believe that we're not supposed to suffer for our faith because we don't have enough faith or because there's something wrong in your life. Because, see, that's our whole problem with logic and fairness. If something bad is happening to me, I must be causing it myself. And so we get all mixed up and confused because when we do what's right before God and we experience wrong consequences, or at least in our perception of something bad happens to us, then we must not be doing the right thing. When in reality, God's saying these people did the right thing and that was the result of what they did and it wasn't what they expected. It's illogical and it's not fair, but I'm in the middle of it and it's okay. This is interesting stuff because here's typically what happens. If you serve others and you do what is right before others, and you are disillusioned by the result of what you do, the temptation or the tendency will be to feel bitter about it, to become disillusioned by it, and to pull yourself out of the game of serving people because you're experiencing bumps and bruises that you don't think you should be, that you should be experiencing. So you must not be in the right place. You must not be within the will of God. But we just found out the will of God may be that you suffer for doing what's right. So you may be exactly where God wants you to be, going through all that you're going through, getting zapped by a microphone every now and then. That's okay, because that's the way that it is. So the whole point as we go through this, and what I'm trying to get across is, I guess I'm here to tell you and to show you something that's very important to all of us, and that is that once we have a grasp of this truth, then we will not become easily disillusioned, and we will no longer become resentful or bitter by experiencing what we think we shouldn't experience for doing what's right. In fact, if anything, we may see in the midst of all of it that God is at work. And that's what I hope that we see as we go through all of this. If you've got your Bible still open, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because here was a man that understood this whole principle. The Apostle Paul understood what it meant to be persecuted and to suffer for doing the right thing. And what is so ironic about all this nonsense teaching out there today is that if you ask any one of these teachers, 
Do you look at the, is the Apostle Paul a man of faith? Absolutely. What are they going to say? No. They say, well, absolutely. Well, let me ask you something. If he's such a man of faith, then why did he experience all these negative things in his life? I guess he just didn't have the right verses to claim or the right passage to latch on to. What are you trying to say? It doesn't make any sense to me. Help me to understand this because it doesn't make any sense. If he had faith, then why did he experience persecution and all of the rest of this if that wasn't what the Christian life was all about? Oh, but we can't be teaching people stuff like that because we can't get them to sign up. Well, who said we're supposed to get people to sign up? I thought we are just supposed to teach the truth because the truth is what sets people free. I thought we were supposed to share the real gospel because it's the real gospel that saves not only here on earth but for all eternity. And the real gospel doesn't give us an opportunity to be disillusioned by the outcome of certain things because God clearly presents this is what you're in for. But he also says, but let me tell you something, I'm in the midst of it, so don't worry about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, as he struggled with these same things, he laid out some things that are clear to understand as far as this is what the Christian life's all about. 2 Corinthians 4, look at verses 5 through 9. It says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants. There it is again. Here's a man that understood what it meant to be a servant of God and also understood the consequences of serving others. He said he's a bond servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. He says for we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We're perplexed but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. I like that. And if you got, you know, you got a pencil and you want to underline a couple of things, let me give you four terms. And it really is, if you want to think about it, it's really the dark side of serving. It's the consequences of living a life that's, that's pleasing to God. And this is a reality of that life. Not everything is going to go the way that we think it is if we do what's right before God. The dark side of serving, he says, you know what? Number one, he says, you know what? We're afflicted. There's affliction. The word affliction means that there's stress brought on by antagonistic people. That when you live a life that's pleasing to God, you should expect that there'll be people in your life who are antagonistic against the cause of Christ, against the gospel of God, against the truth of the word of God, and you should expect opposition and you should expect it because that's exactly what he said. We are afflicted. There will be people who cause stress in your life because of the stand that you take. When you're afflicted, you feel persecuted, you feel pressured, you feel harassed, you feel oppressed, you feel stressed out. And those feelings are feelings that you think, I shouldn't feel this way if I'm doing what's right. He's saying you should feel exactly that way. And here was a man who was saying, I'm a servant of God and I know what it means to be afflicted. I know what it means to be stressed out. I know what it means to be uh, attacked by other people. He also said, but you know what's interesting, and I love this about Paul, because this helps me understand that there are many times in our life as God's servants where we're going to be real confused. He said, I'm confused. I'm confused about the direction, God, that we're going in all of this. I'm confused about the response. I'm confused about the mistreatment. I'm confused about how this is supposed to be. The disciples were always confused. Jesus is here. You're here to establish your kingdom, right? 
Absolutely. Well, when are we going to take over? Not yet. But when? I'll be back. I'll be back? I'll be back? I mean, the, the, these guys, all, they walked around all the time beating themselves on the head. Every time that you read somewhere in Scripture, they didn't understand something that Jesus said. Later on, they went like this. Oh, man, that's what he meant. He's confused. They were doing the V8 thing. I should have had a V8. You know, they, they're always beating themselves up. Going, man, I'm so confused. I don't always understand all of this. And there are going to be times, and the word confusing or perplexed means there are times in our life as God's servants, as Christians, where we don't know which way to turn. There are times where we're just confused. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know which direction to go. I don't know what God is trying to say. I'm trying to listen. I don't understand sometimes. I don't understand this, but I'm listening to you. And I'm committed to you, but I'm still confused. The Apostle Paul, he's standing on the seashore going, okay, Lord, which direction do you want me to go? He goes, well, should I go back to the east? No, I can't go back to the east. Should I go to the north? No, I don't go to the north. Should I go to the south? No, I don't go to the south. Well, what's left? I think I'll go west. That's the only direction left. But you know what? Sometimes it goes through a long process in our life where God shuts doors down in different directions. And we don't always know whenever God puts a desire on our heart or, or has us and challenges us in a certain area. Should I do this or shouldn't I do this? Should we get married? Shouldn't we get married? What should we do? Should we do this or that? Should we start a business? Should I close a business? Should I shut down a business? Should I move over in this direction? Should I move? Should we move geographically? Should we retire now? Should we wait? You know, there's a million questions, and we don't always have the answers immediately. And I feel a lot better about myself knowing that Paul went through the same thing because I look at him as a tremendous man of God who had his act together and was obedient to God, was a servant of God, and God uses him as an example many times. And you know what he says? But Chuck, you know what? There are a lot of times I was confused. Don't tell me that. I want a formula. I want a one, two, three, four sermon. That's what I want. I want four points, maybe three. Don't give me a lot of subpoints. I just want three big ones that I can walk out of here, grasp, apply, and understand. I want life to be formulated. I want my relationship to be with God to be like in this box that I know that everything's right within there. But it isn't always that way, is it? It doesn't work that way. And this is what Paul's saying. You know, I think of, I think of newlyweds who love each other and are struggling. I think of people who just got married. It's like, we love each other, we're committed to each other, but man, we can't even, we just, I don't know what's wrong. We can't communicate, we're not getting along, I don't know what the problem is, but it's not any, I, you know, we love each other, we care for each other, and you know, bottom line is, we're confused. We're all confused. We all go through that. The wonderful thing is that God's in the middle of all of it. See, he, he, there's encouragement there. We're confused but we're not despairing. He goes on and he says, you know what? And we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. You see, we're persecuted. We're run after. The, the word literally means to have somebody running after you, just chomping at you. Like, if you ever, did you ever jump a fence and run through a yard you're not supposed to? I have never either. But I've heard, I've heard people that have done that. And if you pick the wrong yard to jump into and run through, and they got a dog, man, there is nothing that will get you moving quicker than a dog chomping at, at the rear part of you as you are running through a yard. I mean, you'll get an adrenaline rush like you haven't had in a long time. But that's what he's saying. We're persecuted. We got a world of hungry, ugly, mangy dogs that are running after you, chomping away, trying to get a hold of your backside. It's like, you know, that great theologian Norm of Cheers once said, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, and we're all wearing milk bone underwear. Now, 
That really is the way that it is. That's the way it is. Think about it. All God's people have been given milk bone underwear at salvation. The moment the Spirit of God enters your life, He gives you milk bone underwear. Think about it. It may help you remember. Because from that point on, you will be persecuted if you do the right thing. And the last thing is, and we're rejected. He says we're struck down. The word rejection, struck down, it means that we're knocked down, we're struck down, we're rejected, uh, we're not liked, nobody likes us anymore, we're doing the right thing and we're losing our friends, we're doing the right thing and we're not getting the popular vote, we're doing the right thing and the, and the majority of people don't want anything to do with us. And so, you know, you do the right thing and people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear what makes them feel good. And so that's why you can never base anything based upon numbers of people. It's not based on numbers. Some of the biggest churches in the world are filled with people who don't want to hear the truth and aren't being given the truth, but they're there because they're made to feel good about themselves. I like that. We feel good when we leave. Oh, I feel good. He makes me feel good. Well, maybe you should feel good, but it's God who should make you feel good. And it's oftentimes we need to afflict the comfortable because many of us are comfortable in a position that's wrong before God. That's just the way that it is. And so this, I know that this topic isn't something everyone goes, oh, please teach us about how crummy life can really be. I need to hear this. It'll make my day. I need to walk out of here thinking I'm going to be persecuted for my faith. And isn't that a wonderful experience? I am going to be afflicted, I'm going to be confused, I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to be rejected. Isn't that wonderful? Let's all close with prayer. See, no one wants to hear that. You're all looking at me like, please tell us there's something better that's going to come out of all this. And there is to some degree, but not a whole lot. Because that's the way it is. It's interesting, because those words, these four words will form an outline, and the Apostle Paul understood what this outline was all about, and he went through it. We're rejected. Here's a great illustration. My mind is a really strange thing. But, but I was trying to think of an illustration. Don't clap on that now, because, you know, don't encourage it. But, but think about it. How many of you have ever been to a football game? All right, now think about this for a second. Think of yourself as the football you and I are God's footballs in life. Now, what has a football ever done wrong to anybody? A guy catches the football, he runs into the end zone, he scores a touchdown. He looks at the football, and then what does he do to the football? <laughs> he jams the football into the ground as hard as he can. He just goes, oh, and he spikes the football, and it bounces all over the place. And that's the football's reward for doing the right thing. Because if the man runs across the goal line, but he does not have the football, nobody gets excited. All kind of people run across the line, but they don't have a football. No one stands up, no one cheers, no one applauds, they don't put up six points on the board. All right? Now, the football gets you to the end zone, and you get six points. So what do they do to the football? They snap the football, and then they kick it. <laughs> they kick it to get one more point. So what has the football done to deserve this kind of mistreatment? All it did was its job. We are God's footballs in life. You can't score without the football. Good things can't happen without us footballs here on earth. But when we get across the goal line, you are going to get spiked. You're going to get spiked. 
You don't want to hear that. I know that. I don't want to hear it. But expect it. That's what's going to happen. You can just paint your little face on that football. You can take Wilson off of it, the NFL off of it, and you just put your name in it. In fact, I was going to get everybody football today and just write your name on it. Because that's who you are. That's who I am. I am God's footballs here on earth. I am a football that's about to get spiked when I do the right thing. That is my reward for doing what's right. You don't want to hear that, huh? That's the way it is. And what Paul said was, he goes, you know what, let, let me just share with you that I am just trying to help you understand something because I understand what it means to be God's football every day. I understand what it means, and I want you to see it, I want you to understand it, because it, every once in a while, when you, like I say, when you grab a towel, you're going to get kicked in the face. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let, let me show you how he relates all this together. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 28. This great man of faith at a tough time here on earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He said, you know what? Are these people really servants? Are they really servants of Christ? I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. It says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all of the churches. He said, you know what, let me tell you something. I know what it means to be afflicted because I've been afflicted in far more labors. I know what it's like to be afflicted in far more labors. That's some kind of stress. That's some kind of pressure. In verses 27 and 28, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and without food. I've been in the cold and I've been exposed. You know, and it's really sad to me when I think about it because popular teacher ha teaching has it that you should never suffer any kind of economic hardship in this life, that you should all drive a Mercedes and you should all have money in the bank. You should all wear a Rolex and everything should be wonderful. And here it is that Paul didn't even have clothes sometimes. He suffered from exposure. He suffered from cold. He had to count on people in churches to raise financial support to take care of him in imprisonment and his imprisonments. I guess there's just a real conflict here with the message that's out there, isn't there? He says, I know what it's like to be stressed out. I know what it's like to lay up at night and worrying about things. I know what it's like to lose and not have uh, sleepful nights, restless nights. I know what it's like to be confused to the point where I'm not sure what direction to go in life and I'm just waiting on God to try to give me some insight. Because that, that was my existence and, and I'm a servant of God and there's no question that I am and none of you can question my credentials. And I'm just here to tell you that in that affliction and far more labors, there was a lot of pressure. And uh, you know what? Let me tell you something. If you're going through some difficult times, you're no less a servant of God because of it. You're no less a child of God because of it. You're God's child. He knows what you're going through. 
You don't have to lay an additional guilt trip on yourself because you don't fit into the profile of some of the misconceptions that are out there about what it's like to live for the Lord. You see, because Paul said, you know what, I, I know what that's all about. I know what it's like to be stressed out. But he goes on and he says, you know, and I also know what it's like to be confused. I've been on frequent journeys. You know, when you go through it and he's been imprisoned and you go through all the things that he says about it, there's confusion. Man, you know what, it's kind of like, I know what he's thinking. Man, only the guilty go to prison. Only the guilty get fired from their job. Only the guilty lose everything financially. Only the guilty, you know, maybe have a marriage fall apart. Only the guilty have a child run off and do things that aren't right before God. I mean, only the guilty experience these things in life, right? Wrong. Wrong. Oftentimes, those that are doing what's right experience those things in life. See, the confusion is Paul's saying, you know what, only guilty go to prison, right? And I read through my Bible, and I'll tell you what, I got to believe that Joseph was sitting in prison saying, why am I in prison in Egypt? God, what did I do wrong? If I remember right, the reason I got thrown in prison was because I didn't have sex with some other guy's wife. If I remember the story right, and now I'm in prison, what did I do wrong? Daniel finds himself in a den of lions. What did I do wrong, God? They told me I couldn't pray to you anymore. And I'm praying. And they took me and they threw me in prison because of it. What did I do wrong? Nothing. I'm reminded of John the Baptist as I was studying this and I was going through it. It was like, first thing I thought of was, remember John the Baptist when he was in prison? What was going on in his mind? Hey, uh, can you do me a favor? Talking to his disciples. Can you go and ask Jesus if he's the one that we've been looking for? Can you just go assure me that everything's going according to plan here? Because if I remember right, I got thrown in prison for doing the right thing. And if I remember right, and if I remember right, and I know I remember right, he lost his head because he did the right thing. See, there's this misconception, and we need to understand that there are a lot of times we're going to be confused because we don't like what's happening in our life even though it is the right thing. And really, the options are twofold. There's a great story of Corey Ten Boom, who many of us are familiar with, who was a woman who was persecuted for doing nothing wrong, as the Jews were in Nazi Germany. They did nothing wrong, and we all know the story of her faith, how it emerged with much strength as she came out of there. But there was also many individuals who were in the same prison camps who did not emerge with the same type of outlook on God. And Francis Muriac, who was a Nobel Prize-winning French author, wrote about a particular gentleman who had a different outlook. Ellie Wiesel wrote a book called Night. And this was the foreword to the book. He said, It was then that I understood what had first drawn me to the young Israeli. That look as of a Lazarus risen from the dead, yet still a prisoner within the grim confines where he had strayed, stumbling among the shameful corpses. For him, Nietzsche's cry expressed an almost physical reality. God is dead. The God of love, of gentleness, of comfort, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has vanished forevermore. Beneath the gaze of this child in the smoke of a human holocaust exacted by race, the most ferocious of all idols. And how many pious Jews have experienced this death. 
on that day horrible even among those days of horror when the child watched the hanging, yes, of another child, or who he tells us had the face of a sad angel, he heard someone behind him groan, where is God, where is he, where can he be? Confusion, tragedy, resentment, bitterness. We all read about Cory Ten Boom, but for every Cory Ten Boom, there were another 10 or 15 people who emerged from it on the other side of all of it saying, where is God? Where is he now? And why did he let this happen? See, we really have two responses when we experience the disillusionment of things not going the way we think they should go. It'll either strengthen your faith and draw you closer to God, or it'll cause you to raise up your fist and shake it in his face and say, see, I told you you weren't there. And, and the Apostle Paul said, you know what? We were, he was beaten, persecuted, beaten without numbers. He was beaten many times for doing the right thing. He was in rejection, often in danger of death. The man was no criminal. He did nothing wrong. He was innocent of wrongdoings, yet he was misunderstood. He was hated. He was hunted. And you have to ask yourself a question. How could God allow that to happen to his life? How, or better yet, why? And the answer is very simple. And the answer is where we get all of our hope and where we get all of our encouragement. Because it is, I believe, the God-ordained path to becoming more like Jesus. I really believe that. I believe that Jesus suffered and as, a, as an example, clearly taught that he was an example for us to follow, that we're to follow in his footsteps. For though he was treated unjustly, he continued to entrust himself to him who judges righteously. That really the bottom line is, is that all of us, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, all of us carry about in us the body of the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. There is no greater testimony to the world around us than we endure patiently when we are mistreated for doing the right thing. We are never more like Jesus than we stand there trusting ourselves to God, knowing that his plan is exactly as he designed it and he's right on target. And I'll close with these two thoughts. Here's how you and I can both cope with the consequences. Number one, we need to understand this, and this is a truth. God is in control. God is in control. When, quote, bad results happen for doing what is right, you and I can be confident that God is in control. He knows it. He's allowed it. Look at the life of the man Job. God is in control. He went through all kinds of things and he didn't do anything wrong. He was a righteous man, blameless before God, and yet he experienced tremendous consequences in his life for doing the right thing. Why? Because we have an enemy who's trying to destroy us every time we turn around. We have an enemy who is bent on destroying every one of us. He cannot have us for eternity, so he might as well make us ineffective and destroy us for the temporary assignment that we have while we're here on earth. God is in control. How do you cope with all this? I'll tell you what. When I realize that God is in absolute, total control, whatever happens, God has sovereignly ordained. He's approved it. And like Job, we may not always understand it. We may not always understand it, but we can be assured our pain is no accident to God. He guides our lives. He directs our lives. Before it even touches us, it has to go through him. He has to approve it. He has to authorize it. And once he does, you know that he knows what he's doing. But it's a reality. It's not going to be easy. But you know what? 
but God's in control. And the Bible clearly teaches it. Joseph in prison. God, is this all going right? Absolutely. Just checking. John the Baptist. Jesus, is this the way it's supposed to be? Hey, the lame are healed, the blind see. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. That's all I needed to hear. Just checking. Wanted to make sure this is the way it's supposed to go. Okay, great. Daniel. Hey, God. I just want to remind you. But then again, what did he tell Nebuchadnezzar? He said, hey, you know what? I believe that our God can save us from the fire. But you know what he said? But even if he chooses not to, I still trust in him. Isn't that a wonderful truth? But even if he chooses not to, I still trust in him. What a great response. God is in control. And God is using everything to prepare me to be a more effective servant. Everything. Everything that you go through. Everything that I go through. All of those, quote, bad things for doing the right thing. God has approved it. He's ordained it. He's allowed it. And now he's going to use it. For God really does cause all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. You know, I really like what Paul had to say because in every one of those answers or any, every one of those things he struggled with, he said, we're afflicted, but you know what? But we're not crushed. We're confused, but I'm not despairing. I don't, I'm not confused to the point where I don't think there's hope. I'm just confused right now, but I'm not despairing. You know why? Because I know God's got a plan. I'm just confused because I don't know what it is yet, but I know he's going to reveal it. I'm persecuted, but I know that God hasn't forsaken me. He's still with me. Saying, I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. See, that's really the answer to all of it. God empties our hands and causes us to turn to him. I like what one man wrote. He said, one by one he took them from me, all the things I valued most. Till I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highways grieving in my rags and poverty until I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. Then I turned my hands toward heaven and he filled them with a store of his transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and doll that God cannot pour his riches into hands already full. I like that. Things may not always be logical. Things may not always be fair. But I'll tell you this, when God is directing the events of our lives, they are always right, even when we suffer the consequences of serving others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to just take a good, close look at truth. God, many of us have experienced it, and we know it's true, though we're told otherwise from those who don't have any credible evidence to back up anything that they say. They fleece the flock of God. They manipulate and use people to further their own purposes. They manipulate others so that they could build themselves up and build their own empire here on earth. They're false teachers and false prophets, and God, your word clearly exposes them. God, we just read your word and we see that it's true, that we all live in difficult times and we all know it. We've experienced it firsthand. And yet we've also experienced the comfort and the assurance and the confidence that you're there by our side. God, your spirit ministers to us as we go through difficult times and he reminds us of the truth of scripture 
that says that you are in total control and that everything that happens to us that you allow for the purpose of conforming us into the image and likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to accept this and know that it's true. Help us to look forward with anticipation to the blessings and the promises that you've given us, knowing that just as Daniel said and his friends, that even though it's not your will that certain things happen the way that we want, no matter what you do, we still trust in you. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.